Good morning. Hi, I'm so glad you're all here, and it's so lovely to be with you today. I won't get to do this very often, but every once in a while when Chris is unavailable, I might be tapped to be in with you, and I'm, I'm, I look forward to it today, and I look forward to it in the future, and I'm, I'm glad you're all here today. And so I, I did go ahead and listen to um, Chris's class from last week just to get an idea of how this goes, um, and I just want you to know I do not have a lot of the stuff at my fingertips like um, Chris does. I was just so impressed that like he'd go off into telling you about the Hebrew scriptures and then he'd go off into, and then he's drawing you pictures about different ways we understand how the Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father and God the Son. And it's not, I promise you, I learned all this stuff in the day, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they really did check my credentials before they gave me the degree. But, um, but as any of you who, um, you know, are getting up in years, you know, it's not all at your fingertips like it used to be. So I've had to get very comfortable being able to say, I can look into that and get back to you. <laughs> so if you hear that today, um, please uh, have patience with me. Um, the th before I get started, I also do want to say that, you know, our beloved uh, rector and leader is in Washington, D.C. today. If you don't know that, I want to share that with you. And he had been invited and is doing as we speak. He's giving the opening um, prayer and blessing to the House of Representatives in um, Washington today. And so I want to make sure that as we open in prayer that we especially pray for Chris as he's um, um, being being. Uh, used as a witness in that way and to be able to speak towards uh, God's work in the world. So let us start. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you in thanksgiving for this glorious fall day, for the time that we will spend together. We ask that you bless our discussion. Use it um, to draw us closer to you, to draw us closer to one another, to become more and more the people that you have created us to be. And Lord, we especially um, lift up our rector, Chris, as he is in Washington, D.C., offering prayer at the opening of the House of Representatives this morning. We ask that you would um, live, enliven his words, that they would touch the hearts of all of our elected officials, and that um, they would be drawn more to you, and um, that they would uh, be drawn in a collegiality of spirit to do good work on behalf of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We also should pray for his safe travel, that he gets back to us safely, too. All right, so we're on Luke 3 today. And um, if you notice in the book that we're studying, the N.T. Wright book, they kind of separated this up into three sections. Um, the and this is all pretty much John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. And so the first section is pre the preaching of John the Baptist. Let me see what, how I've got this done out. And then the second is uh, John confronts the crowd. And then the third is Jesus' baptism and genealogy. And um, what I thought I'd do is, is a format that I've been doing a little bit on Sunday mornings and um, in some of my other classes is that I was going to go through and based on some of the readings um, for those sections, unpack a few things. But then when we get, when I'm done doing that, I just kind of want to open it up for questions. So please, as we're going through this, keep in mind anything that's coming to mind that you want to ask about. And we'll spend the second half of the uh, class just going through any thoughts, questions, observations that you have. So, um, 
All right, page 30 in the book is where we start this time. And so I, I noticed that Chris uh, talked a little bit last week about how this imagery that ties John the Baptist to Isaiah at the beginning, this um, a voice shouting in the wilderness, get ready a path for the Lord, make roads straight. And, and I know that he brought up that you can go back to Isaiah and find that language again. And so this is a way that Luke wants to... Um, to tie John as this kind of bridge figure between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Um, and John is the first prophetic voice that they've heard in 400 years. They just haven't had a prophet in years and years and years. And so there's something about John showing up and starting to act like the prophets of old that is very affirming um, and, and uh, draws people in because it is nostalgic to them. It reminds them of when they had the prophets of old and they are hungry for it. And we're told that John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And Chris talked a little last week about ritual cleansing. And as we're going to see, John is really big on optics. Um, he's calling folks to leave the safe, comfortable boundaries of town and come out to the wilderness to do something uncomfortable, to be baptized in the river. He wants them to understand this ritual cleansing as a, as a fresh start, as a turning point, as a metanoia, that term metanoia that, that you, you hear us mention about turning around. And lo and behold, folks are coming. He sees that folks are hungry for more than a transactional faith with God. They want an honest, real relationship with God that changes them from the inside out. We have this part in here where it says, twisted paths will be straightened out, rough roads will be smoothed off, and lives shall see God's rescue. Um, basically, this is what God is saying out of these words, right? You've twisted everything. You know, the covenant that I established with you through Moses was to establish a boundary within which I could be your God and you could be my people. But over time, you've kind of turned it into a follow the recipe, follow the rules kind of game. You've, you've twisted my law to enhance yourself and to keep others in their place. I've sent you prophet after prophet after prophet to tell you that what I really want is a contrite heart, that what I really require is that you do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. This is what I've been telling you over and over and over, and yet you don't hear it. You've perverted what was supposed to help us be in loving relationship with one another. I want so much more for you than this legalism and rule following that you've gotten into. I don't want you to think that if you follow a formula, all is good with me. I mean, where am I in that formula? Where am I in that equation? I'm kept at arm's distance. I need to shake you up and help you see that I want a much more intimate, personal relationship with you. And that is part of what John's preparing the way for and part of his message. <laughs> and then he moves into um, name calling. 
Okay, so you brood of vipers. I should read through the whole thing because it's great. But, you know, basically it's like, who warns you to repent from the... So it's so funny. He goes out to the wilderness and he starts baptizing people. He's basically inviting everybody to come out and do this thing. And then the ones that actually take the trip out and show up, he starts yelling at them. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> Who says John doesn't know how to win friends and influence people? And so I, I want you to think a little bit about John's parents. So we've got John's parents are Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is what we're told about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. So here are these two blameless, beautiful people that are total Jewish rule followers. They, they're, you know, Zechariah is a Levite, he's a priest, they're following all the rules, right? And then here's this John, their only child, their miracle child, right? He's not following in his father's footsteps to become a Levitical priest. He's going out to the wilderness, right? He's leaving them. He's taking himself out where he can mount a countercultural movement. So John the Baptist is a hippie, right? I mean, he's like, he's left the establishment and he's gone out and he's starting this whole other thing. And he's chosen this geography, this wilderness. That is part and parcel of this radical new message that he's bringing. Um, he wants that to be part of that. <laughs> and so as part of this shaming that he gives everybody who comes out, he says, don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Let me tell you, God can raise up children from Abraham from these stones. And so I want to touch on that a little bit because really that's kind of where we had gotten. We'd gotten to the point where it was like, well, I've got the birth certificate, I'm in the line of descent, I'm good, right? I'm, I'm going to be okay. And so what John is saying, and it goes back to how I, I um, characterized God's lament at what we had turned our relationship with him into, is that that's not going to be good enough anymore. If you've been relying on the fact that you just come down the bloodline, I'm here to tell you that's not what God desires for you. God desires so much more for you in relationship. It's what you've been relying on all these centuries, but you've gotten lazy. And so God's here to shake things up. There's going to be no more automatic legacy pledges, is what God is saying. <laughs> you have forgotten your proper place with God. God's going to expand the definition of what it means to have Abraham for one's father so that more people can be blessed and can come to relationship with God. Going forward, it won't be about being Abraham's blood ancestor, but about reflecting character and behavior that is consistent with that of Abraham. And so in this, John's setting the tone for what's going to come with Jesus, and especially as Luke tells us in his gospel what his um, priorities are about what he wants you to know about Jesus. It's going to set the tone because what you're going to find in Luke is that Jesus in his stories and his teaching, he's always going to be emphasizing caring for the least and the lost and the last. That's going to be a central theme. And so again, it's not, it's not going to be about I've got the lineage and I've got the, the family tree and all of that. It's going to be how are you living in the world? How are you reflecting that you are a child of God? And you're going to hear that more as we get into further stories. Okay, so then this next section 
is John confronts the crowd, which, gosh, it kind of sounds like he was already doing back there, doesn't it? But, um, but in a new round, he starts saying, well, actually, he's much kinder here. What happens is people start asking him questions. Well, what does this mean? John, what does this mean? If we've got this new relationship with God, what's that going to look like, and what should we do? And so John kind of says, what I want you to know is that this is all about the way that you're living, not about the religious rules that you've been keeping. Be fair with people. Don't cheat, don't take more than your share, share with others, be content in your situation. As our beloved friend, Bill Pather, Father Bill Power would say, John the Baptist is putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. Have you ever heard him use that term? It's beautiful, right? And it means he's making it easy for you to get to and making it easy for you to understand, right? He's saying, I'm not interested in you being able to recite to me the 613 laws of the testament i want you to live lives this is easy peasy mac and cheesy you can remember this stuff right um, and so that's what he's doing it's not about a lot of new minutia rules it's about living out what we know to be right already and I, you know what i kind of thought about here is that he's also trying to encourage folks to take back their own personal agency. He's saying, you know, you've kind of become like sheep under a system that's, um, that you no longer question. You're just kind of going through the motions now, and you kind of take what they've handed you down, and you do it, and you cross the T's and dot the I's and sign on the dotted line, and that's not how, for me, that's not how you're going to have a rich life, how your life is going to flourish. That's not what I want. And so I want you to have agency. I want you to contribute to this relationship. I don't want you just to be a passive receiver of this relationship. I want you to suit up and show up because not only do I want to be in relationship with you, but you and I are in relationship that means we're going to have work to do together to bring about my purposes in this world. And so I need you engaged and, and suited up and showing up, not just ticking the boxes, right? And so when he says all this stuff, it's kind of shocking, but just saying things like be nice to others and share and be content makes them start saying, is he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? Which is really sad because clearly they're not hearing much of this message anywhere else if someone saying this makes them say, is John the Messiah? And so John comes back and he says, mm -mm, I'm not the guy, but I'm preparing the way for the guy. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so I, um, Chris had a, a great conversation on the Holy Spirit last, in the last class with you, and so I kind of wanted to um, take that and open that up a bit, that God's Spirit does appear often, often, often in the Old Testament. We hear about it a lot. Um, but the Spirit is given and withdrawn at God's prerogative. So um, let's take an example like Saul. So he anoints Saul to be his first king of Israel, and he places his spirit upon him. And you can, we can find that in Scripture where it talks about God placing his spirit upon them. And then the more that Saul does things to disappoint God, there's a point in time where God decides he is moving on. And he sends Samuel to anoint um, David, and he, they're, they're moving on. They're going to have the next king. And he, in, there is a line in there where it says, and God withdraws his spirit from Saul, right? And so it, that's, that's how God's spirit worked 
in the Old Testament, right, is that um, God would give it and God could take it away. And, and the difference with the Holy Spirit and our understanding of that is that Jesus promised us that the Holy Spirit will come and it will reside with you forever. It will not be taken from you. And in fact, the way that you'll be in relationship with me is going to be through that residing Holy Spirit that is within you. Um, and so that's, that's a little nuanced difference in how we understand the Spirit to be working um, as one of the three persons in the Godhead that is with us continually, as, we, as we've been told, guiding us into all truth um, so that we will have that connection to the Father and to the Son. And for Luke, and you'll hear this more, and when you get into chapter 4, you're going to have Jesus un unrolling the scroll in the temple and reciting it. And it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he gives this whole pronouncement of what God's intent is, right? And so for Luke, he wants you to get that the Spirit that is now acting through John the Baptist and that we'll see in Jesus' ministry is that same prophetic Spirit that moved through the Old Testament, that moved through all the prophets of the Old Testament because for Luke he wants you he wants to tie Jesus to the prophetic line for you he wants you to see first John and then Jesus as a continuation and all the prophets and it's one of the three titles um, that we give for Jesus prophet priest and king right so so that is consistent with how we understand Jesus to be uh, operating okay and at the end <laughs> at the end of this section uh, John urged his news on the people and many other words, but Herod the Tetrarch, whom John had accused in the matter of his brother's wife Herodias, and for all the th evil things which Herod had done, added this to the list of crimes that he shut John up in prison. So very early here, you know, we've got accounts of John being imprisoned in all the different gospels. And so in our heads, we sometimes let those all run together, right? And, and we just kind of have a glossed over. We kind of do that with the uh, birth narratives. There's other things that we do that with too, the baptism narratives. All the gospels have just a little bit of different take on that. But because we've heard all the stories so many times, we kind of end up running them all together. Um, but this, so in Luke's gospel, John is imprisoned very early. And so I kind of wanted to tell you a little bit about this situation with Herod. Um, so what happened is uh, Herod is, is not a fan of John's. Um, First of all, as, as John, as uh, Chris mentioned last week, John is a bit of a loose cannon. And so because he's unpredictable, he's seen as potentially dangerous. And the more folks go out to hear his message and submit to his baptism, the more he's kind of starting to undermine the current power structure. And so, um, and finally, Herod just doesn't like him because uh, he's been calling Herod out on his improper relationship with Herodias. So here's the story on this. Herod actually abducted Herodias from his brother when he visited him in Rome. So he goes to visit his brother and sister-in-law in Rome, decides he kind of wants his sister-in-law for himself, and she's open to it as well. So he just brings Herodias with them back to um, this part of the world, and she goes. And so she actually divorces her his brother, her husband, which is unheard of in that time for women to be able to divorce their husbands, and um, marries, shacks up with, you know, I, I don't know if there was a clean bill of sale that allowed them to kind of, 
They're living as a married couple, but I don't know how legal all of that was, right? But it was offensive to Jewish sensibilities. And so Herodias, the, the new wife, is, or whatever, right, is um, especially sensitive to John because she's worried that over time, John's continued speaking out against their relationship and other things that Herod's up to, that um, eventually her husband might be swayed by these arguments, might be swayed by the discontent of the crowd about this situation, right? So she's worried about herself and how she's going to hang in this situation. And so this eventually leads to the scheme that you'll hear later down the road where she has her daughter, Salome, dance for Herod for his birthday and then ask for the head of John the Baptist when he offers a gift in recompense for how much he was moved by that lovely dance by Salome. Um, <laughs> then she says, I want the head of John the Baptist, right? So that's kind of where that's going to go to. That's the backstory on some of that. And this whole talk of, is he the Messiah? I, I just wanted to touch on that we, to, to remind us that the Messiah is the one who will save, the one who is coming, and literally the anointed one. And so um, what John is setting up is this guy's coming and I'm preparing you for this guy, right? And then finally, our last section in uh, chapter three is about Jesus' baptism and his genealogy. And I wanted to pull out uh, this section. I'm gonna read through this. So it happened that as all the people were being baptized, Jesus too was baptized and was praying. The heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove upon him. There came a voice from heaven, you are my son, my dear son, I'm delighted with you. So I wanna talk about this because I noticed that we got into a little discussion on our Trinitarian God last week as well. And this is one of the passages, the baptism passages are one of the passages that we use when we're showing how scripture witnesses to a Trinitarian God. And so I wanna overtly point this out. It's also in the creation story, we can talk about that too, but in the baptism story as well, and then in the Great Commission where Jesus tells us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, yes? So um, when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven, God the Father, says, you are my son, the beloved. So in this scene, you have God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father all present in the baptism of Jesus. And I love this little thing that it said, He'd been baptized and he was praying. Because that's another thing that Luke's gonna stress a lot is that Jesus is a praying guy. And, and there's a lot of prayer in um, Luke's gospel and, and you'll continue to see that as you move further through that. But Jesus is one who prays and, and that's good because he models for us that that's what we should be doing as well. And so finally, I kinda wanted to touch on these uh, genealogies that are at the end that genealogies in scripture, well, um, they're an important way of reminding folks 
uh, of their family, of their roots, of their story, remember who you are kind of thing. And so that's why you'll see, you know, all of a sudden we'll just be clicking along, having narrative stories and getting into it. And then all of a sudden there's a chapter and it's like, you know, Joe, who was the father of Robert, who was the father of Matt, who was the father of da-da-da, and you're like, oh, my stars, what's going on here? And it's because those were really important touchstones to the Israelites. It reminded them about who they are. So just as we tell the stories in our family about our ancestors, where they came from, um, who we get certain talents in our families from, um, what... uh, you know, where our family used to be on the farm and how that made it available for us then to go off to college and how, you know, just all of the stories about how our family line has gotten to the place that it is. You know, that's important to us as well. So we can kind of see this thing. And um, it, and it is important that we remember who we are. And I used to have a friend who, when he was raising his kids and they would go out for the evening, um, <laughs> as they were heading out the door, he would say, remember who you are. And that was a way of reminding them, you know our family and you know how you've been raised and you know the rules and I'm um, confident that you're gonna live within that, but I'm just gonna give you a little reminder as you're walking out the door, remember who you are. Never hurts to be reminded, remember who you are, right? And so the other important thing is that it ties us and the people who were related to all of these names, it ties them to a bigger story. It reminds them that they're part of something that's so much bigger than themselves. And at the same time, it helps them find their unique place in that story. So both it affirms them in their individuality and it reminds them that they're just a small part of something that's so much bigger too. And uh, they point out in this reading in our book for today that there's actually some differences between the genealogy of Jesus that we get at the beginning of Matthew and this genealogy that we're given in Luke. And there are differences, and, and none of them are major, but it really comes down to what Matthew wants to emphasize about Jesus versus what Luke wants to emphasize about Jesus. So um, Matthew is, is very concerned with Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy and promises. And so the names that he's pulling in are things that speak to things like that. Whereas Luke is concerned with Jesus' lineage through the royal line of David. He wants, you to, make, he wants to make sure you understand Jesus comes from royal stock. He goes all the way back to our kings, to, to David. And Matthew lists some women Luke is all men, right? Um, but it was, I loved going through that list because he takes Jesus back through David, through Judah, through Jacob, through Abraham, through Noah, through Methuselah, which you just got to throw in there because you love that Methuselah is like, you know, the oldest guy ever. Um, through Seth, who is the child that Adam and Eve have after Cain kills Abel and then is sent out um, and away, right? Then they have Seth. So he goes through Seth all the way to Adam and then to God. Isn't it kind of beautiful that Luke ends that genealogy going all the way right back to God as God the father of Adam and then down through that line. And again, so in, G- so in Luke, Jesus, he's very interested in you understanding Jesus as a prophet in the line of Elijah and Isaiah. And so he is, is going to um, emphasize that when he's t- making ties to Jesus all throughout his gospel. 
Okay, that's what I have in the way of prepared stuff for this Luke 3 that has to do with John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. Thoughts, questions, comments? <laughs> I know. I think they made the point in here, and it's a point that I've read before, that because she's cousins with Elizabeth, and we believe both Elizabeth and Zechariah were out of the Levitical priestly line, that he might be tied back to David through Mary's line as well. But it is, that is very interesting, isn't it? I, I've, early on, I always said, why are they so interested in showing us these genealogies that go back to certain things because it's not like he's Joseph's blood son anyway so why are we making a big deal about this but he a one option is he could get that through his through Mary and B it's still um, I don't know it almost is a beautiful thing isn't it that Jesus in the mold of an adopted child right almost um, is still given all the full um, familial ties of the generations that came before him. To me, that's a very inclusive, beautiful way of looking at Jesus' tie back to all of that. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that people, that there are writings out there that scholars have reflected on it. And so there's probably going to be better information out there than what I'm going to give you off the, off the cuff. But I do think that what we see in salvation history is this arc of maturing of relationship right so we start in the garden and it's very naive and all our needs are met and it, it should have been enough and it wasn't right we had to pull the apple well, actually done say apple but we had to pull the fruit and eat of it and we had to take the opportunity to become godlike ourselves and to know what god knows we couldn't be content in our one down position to god right and so that kind of opens the door and so you know, so first we fall from relationship with God, and then Cain and Abel, we fall from relationship with one another, and then Noah, everybody was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and I'm just going to flood the whole place out and start over. So, the, and then what we also see is that God, you know, poor God, I just don't think he knew what he was getting into when he decided out of his overflowing love to create us. I mean, here him and the, the, son, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are happy as clams loving each other in the eternal Godhead. And out of that overflowing love, they're like, let's create, let's have others to share this love with. And oh my stars, poor God, I just don't think he knew what he was getting into. So, so then we've got the whole wickedness of humankind and, um, and he, we do the flood, and then God comes right back and says, I will never do that to you again. I'm never going to wipe out all of mankind like that because you are wicked from your birth, and there's nothing I can do about it. You are who you are. You're still my child, right? Which we would do as parents. We would say, okay, I'm, I'm disappointed, but you are my child, and I love you, and I'm going to continue to love you, right? So, um, so then we move forward in relationship, and then he says, you know what? I'm going to pick a person, and we're going to go through that family, and, that, and I'm going to use that family to bless the world and to kind of show my humanity who I created to be in loving relationship with me I'm going to kind of show him what this is supposed to look like through this relationship so he, he he calls Abraham right and he starts working through Abraham Isaac and Jacob and we have the 12 tribes and we have all of that that happens and and in that you're right God continues and then we're in slavery and God goes out and talks to Moses and says 
I've heard the cry of my people. I need to bring, it's time. I need to bring them out of there and bring them into the land that I've set aside to be their land. And so uh, there's, there is this maturing. And, and as we've been doing in the whole Exodus study that we've done for seven weeks with the sermon and the class on Sunday, that we needed to be formed into God's people. That we didn't come by it naturally. It was something that we had to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness learning how to live as God's people before we were ready to come into the land. And then, you know, God's plan was that we would come into this gifted land and through that we would be a blessing to the whole world. And in some ways we were, and in some ways we weren't. We weren't living up to that ideal. And so the more we got off course, God would send a prophet and he'd talk to us and he'd say, you're getting it wrong. I'm trying to call you back to me. Here's the way I really want y'all to live with one another. And he kept doing that, right? So we had all these prophets. So yes, there was a period where we stopped hearing the voice of God in ways that we understood, right, as being the voice of God. Perhaps he was talking to us in quieter, gentler ways that we don't have a lot of write-up history acknowledgement about. Personally, I think God's still acting and working during those 400 years of silence, but it just wasn't, there wasn't someone who so clearly when they open their mouth, people are like, oh my stars, he's speaking for God. You know, there had just been this really low period, I guess a, a kind of dark ages in a way, right? A dark ages of not having that word. But I think all of it is just part of the growth of our relationship with God over this time. And, and then it, it hits its fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus showing us this is what it means to be someone who is in perfect, um, synced, loving relationship with God. And so from here on, and, then, and so then we've got the example of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, but Jesus goes back, right? He ascends. But his promise is, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to dwell with you, and it's going to continue to lead you into what I've taught you, what I've showed you, and give you the ability to live into what I'm calling you into. You might not have thought you had the ability built in, baked in, to live into what I was calling you into, what God was calling you into you might have thought that bar was too high and you just might as well give up now I'm telling you I'm giving you all the power you need to be able to live into that and then we move forward from there and a whole new paradigm of being in relationship with God wow that was a lot longer than y'all wanted to y'all were prepared for yeah <laughs> yes I probably use it out of habit more out of anything just because, um, oh, I'm sorry. She said I use the term Godhead, and she'd like me to unpack that a little bit um, because that's, uh, you know, a, a fuzzy or an, or an incomplete term, right? And so, I mean, I, think, I do think it would be more appropriate to say the three persons of the Godhead, right? That, that, that I said Godhead again, look at me. So, um, you know, three persons, one God. I, I think it's just nomenclature. I don't think head um, means anything other than if we wanted to get into the whole discussion of is God the Father, the head of the Godhead? And then how are God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in relationship? And I don't have the thing, but I understand from listening to it that, that uh, Chris kind of drew a picture of that last time, right? And that that really is the whole um, 
the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son versus the Eastern understanding of the Holy Spirit only proceeding from the Father, that filioque, that, that is the, um, the, one of the major things that we broke on. It's not the only thing, but it's one of the major divisions from the, the East and West. And so um, personally, I see them as interconnected, know that, that if we're dealing with God the Son, God the Holy Spirit and God the Father are, are part of that as well. That, that no person of the Godhead, God, there I am using it again, no person of God you, is, act, ever acts independently, that they're all three present in each other's work, and yet um, they move forward into their, into their areas. I, for me, it's very important to understand it that way because there's the unity in God that is so um, central to my understanding of God. Um, did, boy, did I make that cloudier or did I make it clearer? Is there more? Go ahead. Oh, that he drew. <laughs> Yeah, so, so it would have been um, the Eastern is Father goes to the Son and Father goes to the Holy Spirit. Well, see, I love this because he drew it this way, so that is interconnected, versus a line down, Father to Son to Holy Spirit, which is how I've seen it drawn before. And I, I find that problematic. I think it just means that the images are so important because it makes us think, if it's, if it's drawn inappropriately, that the Holy Spirit is the poor stepchild, right, and that of, of, of God which, you know, it's still a great family to be a part of, but, you know, you don't, you don't want to be labeled as the poor stepchild. So, um, so to me, they all work together. It's not like, you know, I've kind of I've given a sermon on Trinity Sunday about this, but it's not like, you know, God the Son punches out and God the Holy Spirit comes in and punches in. There's no like that. They are all working interrelatedly all the time. Um, but... The important thing is that what that means is that relationship is an essential part of God. And, and, and I think that's so key to us because we wither without having relationship with one another. We're called to be in relationship with one another, not only um, for its own purposes, but as an extension of God's essential relationality, right? That's, that's who we're created to be. And so the, the three persons of the Godhead in relationship solidify that understanding of something that's essential to who we are as created in the image and likeness of God. All right, yeah. So the comment is that, um, that she's in a class right now which is teaching that when this uh, baptism happened and the voice said, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased, that that's a voice that only Jesus heard, that nobody else heard. And I, I don't know if we can actually say definitively one way or the other. To me, if I had to choose, I would say that it makes more sense that it would have been a voice that just Jesus heard because really the point of it was Jesus' affirmation. It was God the Father affirming the call that he was calling Jesus into. And you know, the next thing that happens is he gets chased into the wilderness and tempted, right? And so, um, so he need, in my understanding, it, it was a way of um, giving him a foundation to stand on as he entered ministry, specific, you know, broadly, but specifically entered this time of testing in the wilderness. 
How do we know? How do we do the story? Girl, we would be here all day if we unpacked every story in scripture that could not happen the way it happened. If we, you know, because so the and I'm going to be talking about it in this in the sermon on Sunday. We're t- we're going to be um, talking about Moses' death, and and it's written in Deuteronomy. And, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament were originally attributed to Moses. Well, Moses can't write about his own death, right? And there's a whole scene in there where it's just God and Moses. So it's, you know, how do we have, I mean, how many times are there things in Scripture where the person's not around? We know the story, and yet it's like, how do we know that story? Because so, yeah, that's a thread if we start pulling at it, man, we'd we'd be here all day. Yes. You know, it's funny because I, I, I know that they must just expect, accept him as a historical figure that had this role, right? I don't, I have not heard much conversation about the role of John the Baptist from a Jewish perspective. I think the argument very quickly got to Jesus and who Jesus is, right? And that took the focus and the energy. Um, but I don't know if anyone ever circled back and kind of said, so what do we think about um, John the Baptist? But I will tell you this, there's, uh, so we are celebrating this month, in case you're not aware, the 500th anniversary of the posting of the thesis on the Wittenberg um, Cathedral, right? And so of Luther's, which is pegged as the beginning of the Reformation. So we're basically celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, really, as we speak. It's like sometime, one day late in October right now. So um, what the Reformation did, it not only developed some Protestant Christian sects that broke off from the Roman Catholic tradition. But then what happened is there was a counter-Reformation movement in the Roman Catholic Church. And so what, what happened is that, yes, some folks broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and said, we believe that God's calling us to live this out in a different way than what this church has been showing us. But the people who stayed then looked at themselves and said, you know what, maybe there are some things that we haven't been getting right, and we need to relook at that. And so they re-applied um, mm, uh, themselves, you know, committed them. They recommitted themselves to that. So in a similar way, I think that John the Baptist, even for people who remained Jewish, and some of them may have never even become Jesus followers. They might have just been followers of John the Baptist. And when he came to his demise, they just kind of continued in their Jewish sect. But they were renewed in that, right? That, they, that there was something about John the Baptist that reminded them about who they were supposed to be and how they were supposed to be in relationship with God. And that that would have um, still had benefit even if they had never crossed over and become a follower of Jesus. Anything else? All right, I'm going to gather us up then. I think next week, do y'all know your, do, do we need to tell them Susan assignment for next week or anything like that? Oh, they have it on their bookmarks. All right. Chris will be back with you. I'm sure he's going to enjoy being able to share with you some stories from his um, trip this week. 
And, um, oh, let me do a commercial. So this weekend is uh, the annual meeting. We now are, are changing to where we're gonna do two annual meetings so that we can cover everything and um, focus on certain things at certain times a year. The one this weekend is gonna happen at 10 o'clock, so there will be no adult classes during the 10 o'clock hour. Children will still have classes, so you'll have a place for your children to go. But adults will all meet in the nave, in the church, and we will have the annual meeting, and it'll just be from that 10 to 10:45, and then we'll break for worship at 11 and we'll be electing our vestry members and our um, delegates to convention and um, I see Kay nodding back there is there another item on the agenda I should mention okay good she <laughs> so um so please come and be with us for that all right go in peace to love and serve the Lord